Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this beautiful Lord's Day in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our Conqueror. Greetings. You know, the Scripture teaches us that there's always work to do before you get to start on the work. You kind of know what I'm saying? You probably know this in your houses. You're getting ready to do the dishes. And you got to like clean out the sink before you can do the dishes. You're getting ready to uh, organize the garage. But you can't organize the garage until you clean out. Get it all out. You, you guys ever done this? You rip everything out and put it all over the whole yard. You're like, how could, it, how could all the stuff that's out in my yard ever make it back in this garage, right? A farmer, before he decides to plant and before he can plant, they got to cut the trees down and pull out the stumps and do all that. Nothing's being done, it seems, but the way is being prepared. When Jesus came, God had done incredible work to prepare the whole world for the coming of Christ. And a lot of people don't understand this, what was done. But what was done, uh, if you look back on it, it was uh, the perfect opportunity. Those, Those people who don't know Christ might see it and they go, the reason why Christianity flourished is because it came at the right time. Because there was a time of peace. There were roads built. The whole world spoke one language. And it just so happened. That's why Christianity must have made it. Is because it came just at the right time in the right place. We, we know that didn't happen on accident. Amen? So today we're going to talk about the conqueror of conquerors. And we're going to talk about the conqueror of the conquerors of Decapolis. Everybody say Decapolis. Psalm 2 talks about this. It says, ask this question. It says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know what the Bible says about what he says about these great kings? It says, he that sits in the heavens will laugh. Remember we talked about last week about the king of Tyre. He's up in his his uh, city with 150 foot walls out in the middle of the ocean saying, yeah right, certainly you're going to come and get me. And we know that God did come and get him. The words of the Lord reached all the way to Tyre and leveled it to the ground. Let us break their bands asunder, cast away. That's what they said. But 
The Bible says, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled. But just a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We put our trust in Christ today, do we not? King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, and Master, we thank you today, Lord, that not only have you been conquering the world, but you have conquered our hearts. And Lord God, the rebels that we are, Lord, you are taking us captive and leading us into a land of plenty and peace and beauty for our own good. We pray today as we come before you, sinners that we are, Lord, Asking for forgiveness, knowing you are able and willing to grant it because of the offering of the blood of Christ. Lord, we come before you longing to hear your voice and you speak to us as you have spoken to Adam when you walked with him in the garden. Lord, change us that we might be more like you, Lord God. Raise us up, Lord, that we might indeed follow after you and be the kings of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. remain standing as I read my text for you. It is from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Mark chapter 7, 31 through 37. My sermon today is called The Conquerors of Decapolis. Mark 7, 31 says, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And then they brought him, one who was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat, and he touched his tongue. And then, looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said, Ephathata, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all these things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let us pray. Lord God, be our conqueror today. Conquer our hearts. Help us, O Lord Jesus, to honor you. Help us to hear your word, to love it, and to be changed by it. Amen. You may be seated. I love history. But I don't like history just for the sake of the facts. The reason I love history is because when I read history, I learn what God has been doing in the world. 
Kevin Swanson just came out with a history curriculum that they finished. They've been working on for a really long time. And he said some of the people came to him and they said, uh, I don't know if we can get a credit for this. All the things that people normally talk about in world history, they're not in there. And Kevin's like, really? Everything that I think is important that happened in world history is in there. We can get credit. And some of us laugh and we may even think, well, you know, hey, uh, we need to, if the, you know, there are certain things we have to teach in history. Did you know God determines what's important? That when you're telling the history of the story of the world, you could tell anything. You could talk about what was going on in Burma at that time. You could talk about what was going on in Japan at that time. But God saw fit to talk about what was going on in Israel at that time. He may spend one verse mentioning a king that's never mentioned again that you might uh, ordinarily think in world history we need to know a lot about. But God might spend seven chapters on one man named Joseph. Guys, don't let the world determine what we teach our children is important in history. Can we say amen? God tells us what's important. I said this years ago when teaching through the minor prophets. I'm like, do you think God wasn't aware of Pluto? Do you think God was not aware of Aristotle? Do you think He was not aware of Socrates? He was absolutely aware. He was aware of them and their countries. But in His opinion, what was going on with Ezra, Nehemiah, was more important. But the deal is, is even as people who are Christian homeschoolers and, and people that are Christians, we fail to understand that Christians should be the best historians alive. We should seek to know it, we should delve into it, and we should understand it like nobody because we're not just looking at arbitrary facts, they are tied to the work of God. And so, hey, moms that are in the room that are schooling your children, children, I hope that your mom uh, talks to you this week about what I'm going to talk to you about. I'm going to talk to you about how God prepared the world for the coming of Christ. And he did this in history. And as far as I'm concerned, history is worthless if it doesn't connect us to the work of God. Because God is the most important subject there is. Amen? Alright. God prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. Uh, He prepared the whole world first. And then he came and he prepared the children of Israel specifically by bringing to them John the Baptist. He used the kings of the world to get the world ready for the coming of Christ. And then he used John the Baptist to come and make Israel ready. God goes and prepares the way like I talked about earlier. Sometimes there's work to be done before you do the work. Sometimes you've got to clean all the dirty dishes and the food out of the sink so that you can then clean the dishes. Sometimes you've got to clean all the junk out of the garage before you can organize it. Sometimes you've got to cut the trees down and remove the stumps before you can do any planning. And God has this theme in His work as well. He prepares the way before He comes. In our text, we see this pattern. Before Jesus came to Decapolis, God sent the former maniac of Gadara. Remember this guy that we just read about in our readings today from our gospel reading today? He sent the demons out of him. And something that happens after that should make you as a Christian go, why did Jesus do that? Did any of you, when you heard the story of him casting out, remember how the man goes, I want to follow you now. Now we'd think that that would be the most wonderful thing in the world. Anybody that wants to follow Jesus, he would just let him follow him. But does Jesus encourage the man to follow him or does he not? Everybody say, he does not. Instead he says, I want you to go back home and I want you to tell about what 
God has done in you. And the scripture says he went and he published it throughout the city and people heard about it and great things happened. God sent this man instead of following him to get back in the boat and cross Galilee. You see, the Sea of Galilee was the center, okay, uh, of where God was going to be working out of. Remember how we've talked about this big thing up here being kind of like Sea of Galilee? And on this side over here is where Israel, where you're going to find Israel. And on this side over here, you're going to find places that are modern day, like Jordan and Syria, where the heathens live. Okay? And so, right going right down the middle of this is the Sea of Galilee. Right straight down it is uh, the Jordan River. And then you get, come to the Dead Sea. So there's all this water separating God's people from these pagans, okay? So if you look at it, it's almost like God took out a map and said, all right, I'm going to do my work here, and I'm going to separate the people. I'm going to put this you know, lake up here. That's where I'm going to do my ministry, and I'm going to let this river run down, and I'm going to separate it. Over here are the pagans, and over here are my people, okay? I don't know what has gotten into me lately, but the geography of what Jesus is doing is really speaking to me, Luke. And every time I see this, I'm, I'm reading about this, I'm like, how have I missed this my whole life? So, you know, you might go, Mark's gone crazy on geography. Yep, I have. I've absolutely gone crazy. And I, because under, seeing it makes things make so much more sense. You know, when the Bible is not for us just to be about learning some sayings like early to bed, early to, you know, uh, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's not a book like that. There are things you can do like that. And yeah, you can make a few bumper stickers. But this is a, this is a history. This is in context. Okay? And so be careful not to read the Word of God and have your favorite sayings out of it. But you need to understand the context. And of course you can have your favorite sayings, but you need to understand them in the places they were said. When Jesus said He was the light of the world, when you find out He's doing this on the Feast of Lights, it makes a whole lot more sense. Amen? So, um, the part of the world where this... Thing in our text takes place was conquered again and again and again. Okay? And it was conquered by the greatest kings of the world. And then the greatest conqueror of all came and conquered. And so that's kind of what I'm wanting to lay out for you here today. Uh, he showed when he conquered this that he had power that they didn't have. These great conquerors could conquer cities, they could do all kinds of wonderful things. But you know what none of those great conquerors could do? They couldn't open deaf ears. And they couldn't open blind eyes. And they couldn't take people that couldn't walk and give him legs to walk. Amen? So Jesus, the King of Kings, conquers. He's the conqueror of conquerors. He came to the capitalist as he comes to the whole world. The account of his visit uh, to this well-prepared part of the world is recorded in both uh, Matthew and Mark. And, you know, I, I hadn't really understood that this area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee was such an important part of the world. But, wow, as I was studying this history of what it was and who lived there and what it was all about, it kind of blew my mind. You may not have any, what I'm getting ready to tell you, you may have no idea about this. And for me, this is a new emphasis on for me. We see in Matthew chapter uh, 15, because this is where we first learned about it. Remember, Matthew was written first. Then after that it was Mark, then after that it was Luke, and it was John. So we hear about this first in Matthew 15, and you'll see what's not said in Matthew, and then when we, when we go back to our text, you'll see what we learn. 
So help that this will help you to understand that these stories uh, are sometimes built upon throughout the Gospels. Okay, Matthew 15, Jesus departed from there. Where was he? Where do we talk about? Where Jesus been? He was in the region of Tyre and Sidon, right? He left Capernaum because he came into his own and his own received him not. What did he do? He goes out to Tyre and Sidon where God's judgment was on the city. And he encounters a woman who he calls a dog. Remember that? Remember where we were last week? And so uh, what does it do? It says he departed from there and he skirted the Sea of Galilee. So it doesn't exactly say what it meant. But apparently uh, where he was going, we find out later in Mark, that he was over way over here, okay, up on the coast of the Mediterranean. And he leaves and he comes back and instead of stopping at home, which would be right there where the wood stops and the thing, he goes, he skirts around. He goes around uh, the Sea of Galilee and he goes south down to this side and about right in the middle over here on the other side is where Decapolis begins. It's to the, the east and to the south of the Sea of Galilee. And so he skirts, he goes around that and he goes up on a mountain and he sets down. Uh, he doesn't exactly say where he is. Uh, uh, Luke and John don't tell us anything about this narrative, but Mark lets us know. And we'll get to that. We'll get back to our text in a minute. It says here, though, in verse 30 of, of um, Matthew chapter 15, that the great multitude came. Everybody say great multitude. So here he is. He's going to a land filled with pagans. Now, you have to understand, this land is a land where the Jews don't really go. And not only is it filled with pagans, I was reading about this. You know what it was filled with? It was filled with pigs. So it was kind of a double whammy. Like, you know how today they want to deal with ISIS, you know? And they have found out that they literally can take, like, uh, pig fat and they can, like, uh, put all their bullets in it and then let the ISIS people know. And the ISIS people will run for their lives. Why? Because they believe if they get touched by a pig, they don't get to go to heaven. Okay, so here we have the Jews. We know that they were these these swine were unclean, and we remember Jesus encountered the swine. And what did he do with them? He had them, he had them filled with demons and cast in the sea. Right. So this was the land of the pigs in, in more ways than one. It was a land filled with pagans and ungodliness. Okay, but it was as as pagan and as ugly and as pig filled as it was. It must have been one of the greatest places on earth, and I'd love to go there. Why would, why would I say it might be one of the greatest places? Well, I'm going to tell you. All right, we'll get to that in just a minute. So great multitudes came. How, why did those multitudes come? Where would they come from? Why in the midst of this pig-filled pagan land would they come? Maybe someone had been there and prepared them for the coming of Jesus, right? What did we hear in our reading? Someone must have been there before Jesus preparing the way. Now, here's what Matthew tells us. It says, they came to him having lame. Everybody say lame. lame. Blind. Mute, okay, and many others. And he laid, they laid him down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. So the multitude, everybody say multitude. See, there's this, there's this thing, there's this multitude. This isn't like in Israel where people follow a bunch of rabbis around. This is in the pagan land. There are multitudes already following him because they'd already heard about him from somebody. And at the end it says, he made them whole. The, 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 uh, the mute spoke, the deaf heard, the lame walked. The blind saw and they glorified the God of Israel. Why does it say the God of Israel? Because he's explaining these in a land where they worship all kinds of gods. They, they worship all, who can they, well, we won't get into it, but they had all these gods. The Romans, the Greeks had all these gods, all right? So we come to Mark 7 to our text. It says, it tells us where he departed from. And it says he departed from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he came through the midst to a region of Decapolis. Say Decapolis. Okay. Um, when you say Decalogue, okay, 
If you guys know your Latin, all right, what, or in probably it's the same in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. Hopefully I'll learn some about that, more about that. But the word deck is uh, where you're going to get the number 10 from, okay? You'll see that a, a, you know, a decathlon is an event with, is a, is a contest with how many events in it? It's going to be 10 events. And so in our language, so this 10 means 10 cities, and the funny thing about it is these 10 cities were established, but there ended up being 10, 12, 14. There ended up being a bunch more, but they were defined by 10 cities. And so the region always was known as the region of the 10 cities, okay? Um, and it was there, obviously, on that side of the Sea of Galilee. They brought him one who was deaf, or by say deaf, and he was impudent in his speech, so he was deaf and dumb. Dumb is kind of an old... English way of saying he was mute, he couldn't speak, okay? And they begged him to put his hand on them. Took him aside from the multitude, and he put his finger in his ears, and he spat on him, and he touched his tongue. Now, before we go into what happens there, I want to go back, okay? I want to go back to Decapolis. Decapolis, these ten cities, were uh, established after the death of a great man. Everybody, Everybody remember Alexander the Great? When Alexander the Great, who was actually really great, when he died, he left uh, all of this land that was his personal land, his holdings of his personal land, he left them to his generals. And his generals established these ten cities. Okay, And so that's what Decapolis is. So you're thinking, what is Alexander the Great doing over here? This is where he lived. This is where he grew up. This is where, of all, he's the conqueror of the world, and his father before him was like the, like the same. And of all the places they could live, honey, you know where they want to live? They want to live over here in modern-day Jordan. It must be a glorious place. So, um, it, among Decapolis, there, most of the cities are not cities you would recognize. Have you guys ever heard of Amman, Jordan? Amman, Jordan is the capital city. It used to be called in those days Philadelphia. Now, it's not the Philadelphia of the seven churches of Asia, but it was called Philadelphia at that time. Uh, There's also one named Pella, you know, kind of like the windows, you know, Pella windows, people have heard of those. Uh, Damascus, you've heard of Damascus, right? Uh, And Gadara. So at the time of Christ, the area, as I told you, was thoroughly pagan, place where the Jews stayed away. Uh, But it was also uh, as desirable a place to live as it was undesirable for the Jews to want to be there. So there was a guy who lived there, okay? And his name was Philip, Philip of Macedonia. Do you guys know, you ever heard of Philip? I'm telling you, kids, we got to learn our history because we got to see what God is doing. This guy, whose name's Philip of Macedonia, is a guy from the, the country, the island of Greece, okay? And I was reading about this and learning about this, and what I found out was that Greece, the, the terrain, the mountains, the water, the rivers, are such that even though there were all these great empires like Babylonia, like the Persians, they could not conquer Greece because the terrain was just too hard. Like you go in there and you try to bring an army in there, it wouldn't matter if you had 20 times the amount of men. Uh, the, the, the land was in such a way, you would end up being in some narrow place you had to fight. And these guys were not sissies, okay? You've heard about the Spartans, right? And you've heard about these Greek tough guys, right? These guys were super, super tough guys. And so even though there were these great empires that, that, that uh, uh, were you know, expanding around the world, nobody could conquer Greece. And for 700 years, nobody could even not only conquer it from outside, they couldn't even get together and become one country because nobody uh, could conquer them 
uh, their own country for themselves and, and become one leader. They were all these individuals. But it is where the Greek city-state kind of a thing happened and a lot of culture and, and wealth and ideas that have actually made their way into our, our time uh, came. But there was a man by the name of Philip of Macedonia who had the military uh, skills that no one had. And uh, he was able for the first time in 700 years to go ahead and unify the entire country and to have it under his dominion. And he was so proud of himself and he was so powerful that he's like, you know what, I've got this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to go attack Persia. And I'm going to go crush it. And in battle after battle, he crushed the Persians. Well, this was very terrifying to them. Because not only is now this land that couldn't be conquered for 700 years, uh, is it unified, but now it's coming out. And the Greeks, there were the Babylonians, and then there were the Persians, and now here come the Greeks. And so Philip of Macedonia, uh, who is, there's a, there's a Bible, anybody know the Bible book named after the city that's named after him? Everybody say the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is named after Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. But after he conquered it, and after he started going around conquering all these places all over the Middle East and all over the world, and forming this great Greek empire, he got assassinated. But before he got assassinated, he found this beautiful place that he wanted to live. And everybody say, it was in Decapolis. It was in the city of Pella. And he was living this life of wealth and importance and beauty and power. And he was this great conqueror of the world. But he wants to live in Pella. And he says, you know, I've got this kid and he's a really smart kid and I think he's going to be great. His name is Alexander. Now at that time he was just Alexander. He wasn't Alexander the Great. He was just Alexander. So Alexander, uh, he said, I want him to be great. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get him a tutor. Now, if you were going to get a tutor for your kid and you were the most powerful person in the world, who might you get? Well, there was a guy by the name of Aristotle, and he hired him. Now, could you imagine Aristotle being hired to come and be the teacher at your house for your kids? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Okay? So Aristotle comes, and he teaches little Alexander all kinds of interesting things. And Nathaniel's distracting him over here because I'm wondering, you know, he's, he, maybe he's going to correct my history later on or something. But there's a lot of details. And really what I'm trying to get is a big picture here, okay? Alexander, being learned by, being taught by, by, by Aristotle, was taught Hebrew. Everybody say, Alexander the Great learned Hebrew as a child. So he's Alexander the Great. Remember how God used him to take down Tyre and Sidon and be the fulfillment of the prophecy of that? God also used him to do something else. So Alexander the Great and Plutarch uh, says this of him. I got this quote. If I can find it. It's the quote I was trying to get the other day. All right. I can't find it. Basically, he said that Alexander the Great, at the pinnacle of his, he went, he conquered, he won every battle, he was undefeated. And Plutarch said of him, he said, and when he looked around at the vastness of his domain and realized there were no more places to be conquered, he cried. <laughs> he wept, for there were no more places to conquer. He only lived to be 29 years old. And when he died, he left this land. So, so here we have just east of where everything is going on with God. The pagan world is centered 
where Alexander the Great was raised and where his uh, father, Philip, uh, lived. They all want to live. They're just with all within a few miles of the Jordan River and of the Sea of Galilee and of where Jesus was raised. Isn't it amazing what God was doing all in this one little tiny part of the world? That's amazing to me. And so Jesus goes there. Now some people say, uh, and, and there's a little more to history I want to lay out to you. This guy named Ptolemy. Everybody say Ptolemy. How many of you know who he is? How many of you can spell his name? It starts with a P. I know. Pastor Nang, I'm sorry. Makes no, English makes no sense, okay? So Ptolemy starts with the letter P. P-T, you know? Ptolemy. And Ptolemy was the guy that built the lighthouse of Alexandria in the city, okay? He's the guy that did something else too. He's the guy that commissioned the writing of the scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek. Okay? And there's this big long story with Alexander the Great you can read about in Josephus, but... But they took him, that when, when he came to conquer Jerusalem, when he was dealing with Tyre, they showed him Daniel 11. Remember I talked to you about this last week? They showed him Daniel chapter 11, and he, and he realized, he's, he thought he saw himself in Daniel's prophecy, and so he was pretty excited. He gave favor to the Hebrews as a result of this, and his favor toward the Hebrews, and the fact that he learned Hebrew from Aristotle, worked out to be good, and he passed on to his uh, next in command, Ptolemy, or the guy that ended up succeeding him, the desire to translate the scriptures. They, it wasn't just them. They wanted to translate all important documents into Greek. Because if they did that, what could they bring? They could bring Greek culture. They could communicate. People could talk. So we look at this and you look at it in a world history way, you might miss the fact that God's getting the world ready. He's getting the world ready because the whole world now is going to have one language. If you, if you went to go to Burma with us, Jacob, you wouldn't be able to talk to the people there unless Pastor Nate was with you. And in there, there are places they speak this language. That Imagine going where the whole world could just speak one language. So you learn that one language and you're good. You don't have to know lots of languages. Not only did they do that, but after the Greeks came, and oh, let me throw one thing. The, uh, the, when the scriptures were translated into Greek, this is something you need to learn. And moms, you need to, your kids need to know this. Every Christian should know this. When the, when the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Old Testament, it was called the Septuagint. Everybody say that. Septuagint. That means 70. And that's because of a story you can read about it in, in, in historical documents. We don't know how verifiable it is. But they took 70 great rabbis, they put them in separate places, and they made them translate the scriptures into the language. And uh, the, the story goes that if anyone translated anything wrong, they would kill them. Uh, and then God miraculously had all 70 of them get it exactly perfect, and there were no errors. Now that story, they say, could be stretching it a little bit, but that they did call it 70, and there were 70 rabbis that did translate it, and they did do it independently, and they came up with a great, great version. The Septuagint is not God's inspired word. It is a translation. So if the Septuagint has errors and mistakes, that's all right. Uh, so it is a translation. The original scriptures have no errors. They have no contradictions in them, but translations oftentimes can. And the Septuagint has some mistakes in it. Uh, and scholars have found quite a few of them. So it wasn't perfect. It wasn't divinely inspired, but it was used as a gift of God. And Jesus quotes from it all the time. The apostles quote it from all the time. The whole New Testament, if you read Old Testament scriptures and then you read uh, the New Testament quoting of them, you know how they sound different sometimes, Derek? It's because they're not quoting them from the Hebrew, they're quoting them 
from the Septuagint, which would word things a little bit differently. Okay? Not only did uh, this happen, but after that, when the Romans came, the Romans uh, kept the peace that the Greeks had established in the area and used the benefit of the language, and then they built roads. And Pastor Nang knows the importance of building roads, do you not? Hey, if there wasn't a road, we, can, we couldn't get to his village. I mean, I can't walk that far. I walked halfway from the road back to the village, but if I, I, I couldn't walk much further than that. Up and down and up and down and up and down. And, uh, but roads are important. So God did all of these things. He prepared the roads. He prepared the language. He prepared the peace. Okay? So that Christianity could come. Now, back to Jesus. Jesus had been over here across the Sea of Galilee. And some people say that God had this storm arise here. That the people there would have believed that as they were coming across the Sea of Galilee, they were going into enemy territory over here. They were going into the land of the pigs and the land of the pagans where they worshipped these false gods. And some people would have seen this wind that came, Luke, not just as a wind, but a wind from the demonic powers that would not want them to come. Because he's known as the prince of the power of the air. And so as they came across and those winds were like preventing them and keeping them from coming, God stills the winds to show that he has power over these demonic powers. And then he comes on the, on the land. He casts out the demons. He puts them in the pigs. And the pigs go in the water. Can you see why this imagery is more powerful with the historical context? It was the land of pigs. It was the land of pagans. It was, it was representing Jew and Gentile. Can you see this now? You, you, it's hard to see if you don't know the history. If you don't know the geography. And if you don't know the context. But now that you're hearing it, Jesus is coming back. The maniac of Gadara was told not to follow him, and he went, and he published it. Jesus is back, conqueror of conquerors, to show that he could do what no other king could do. He could raise the lame, open the eyes and the ears, and loose the tongues, and he could save the Gentiles. Aren't we glad God saved the Gentiles? Because that's me, and that's you. So when we get to verse 40 of our text, he took them aside from the multitude. They were gathered. They'd heard about Jesus. This maniac of Gadara did not take the road he wanted. He wanted to follow Jesus. Wouldn't you have wanted... Could you imagine? After living a life among the tombs and living a hard and difficult life, you're finally free from it all. And then Jesus sends you back into the battle. He probably would have rather just got on the boat and hung out with Jesus. Wouldn't have you, wouldn't you rather done that? But instead, following Jesus meant that he did not get the comfort and the friendship but that he had to go back in there and be a warrior. Verse 40, he took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers in his ears and he spat and he touched his tongue. Now Jesus didn't need to do that, Tim. But he did it. These kind of things in Scripture, they always get in my mind. Like Jesus could say, be healed. And he did that sometimes, did he not? He said, he didn't even say anything sometimes. He just told him, go back. The demons will come out, you know. Hey, they're already healed. But in this instance, he takes and he puts his fingers in their ears. Why does he do that? And then, I mean, if I'm going to be healed, if I have someone spit and then take their spit and touch my tongue, I I don't know that I would like that. I mean, I, I don't want to be healed, right? But I mean, that's kind of odd, right? Don't you think so? He could have just said be healed, right? But he doesn't. God was showing us here in this instance. He was 
wanting this, he's wanting this miracle to be recorded for posterity. He wanted this to be recorded in the Gospels for us to read. Because you see, man's salvation is not a work of his flesh. And man cannot make himself walk and, he, and, and, he, and follow after him. Man cannot make himself be able to hear and be able to hear the, the words of God. Man cannot make himself speak and speak the right words. Everything that a man is, he's dead in his trespasses and sins. And of his own flesh there is no good work. He won't say the right things. He won't, even when he hears good things, he won't understand it. We were over at the Bodkin's house and uh, we were talking and, and Andy, it puzzles me. Over in, uh, in Brussels and in, in, in Germany and some of these countries, they are allowing bands of Muslims to run the streets and grab and rape women and rob stores and do violence and they're not stopping them. They're letting them do it because they've come over a part of this Syrian refugee thing and they're just allowing them to do this. And what it appears that they're doing is they're trying to, and in France they were doing this too, they were saying, hey, be, you know, Christianity, Islam, you know, Christianity is this evil, horrible thing we want to throw off. Islam would be better. And they're welcoming Islam. Now, what kind of a fool do you have to be to think Islam is a better solution than Christianity? Here we have people that are standing up and they're wanting gays to be treated like it's all normal. They're wanting women to be treated well, right? They're wanting all of these things. They're wanting equality. They're wanting this. And yet they reject Christianity, which provides beauty and honor and equality for women in many ways. And even allows gracious response even to the heinous sins of the world like homosexuality. But the liberals of the world are embracing people that are throwing homosexuals off of buildings. Cutting people's hands off. Not allowing women to vote. Treating them like property. Killing of their daughters. And, and liberals of the world. Don't you think this is strange? Doesn't it bother you? Don't you think? I mean, the, the same guys that like hate everything that Christians do today are like telling us we should let more Islamic people in. Sharia law is not all that bad. If you don't think that's weird, you're not really thinking this through. And I'll tell you what's weird about it. Guys, they're blind. They can't see this. I mean, when I, I, I think I'm going to beat their argument by going, you know what, why don't we institute Sharia law and let you live there? And I'm thinking, well, that'll wake them up, right? And then I tell them what Sharia law is, and they're like, they're like it doesn't seem to bother them. Look, this is insanity. We're living in a world where any right-thinking person with a brain would know that to live in the peace and prosperity and beauty of a Christian-run nation with the freedoms that we have would be a million times better than living under the oppression and ungodliness of the deserts that are created through Islam. But we live in a world and they just, they think, well, this is just as good as that. I'm telling you, the only way in the world they can think it, guys, is they're blind. What does it say in Gentiles? It says we're not to walk the way the Gentiles walk, right? It says they're blind. Their hearts are darkened. They're alienated from God. Folks, we want the approval and approbation of the world and they're blind. They think Islam's just as good as Christianity. You think all they'd have to do is do a little bit of traveling and find it out. Hey, why don't they go live in a Muslim country? Jesus was showing us that the work of salvation that can only be done if people had the ears to hear. Jesus was always saying it, wasn't he, Jeff? He that hath an ear, let him hear. I always thought it was a saying, listen up. It's not. 
It's the saying is, he that hath an ear, let him hear. My sheep hear, everybody say, my voice. Guys, we cannot even hear God's words. We can't even see them for the beauty that there is. I, I don't know if it was Lewis that was talking about this or, or was it uh, someone that recently, they were saying, do you guys remember in the last battle? And in the last battle, the dwarves are there. And they come in and they bring them the beautiful flowers. And they're like, no, you want to come to this beautiful land with beautiful flowers? And they go, get that barn stink out from my nose. They, they, they couldn't even see the beauty of the flower. They couldn't even smell the beauty of it. To them, it was like the dung on the floor of the barn. And I'm telling you, the world, they're swine. The Bible says we are not to cast our pearls before swine. But Jesus didn't come. You know what He came to do? He came over there, not to cast His pearls before the swine, but to go over and to make them not swine anymore. Kyle preached a sermon here years ago and he asked the question, he says, when is a dog going to quit, you know, doing all those yucky things dogs do? You know, they'll eat like a dead animal on the side of the road or they'll like regurgitate and then they'll like eat it and they'll, right? And, and, come on, as much as we like dogs, dogs do some pretty gross things, right? And he asked the question, he says, when, when are dogs going to stop doing that? And, you know, we were all trying to think of what, you know, the great pithy, wise thing he was going to say. But what he said was, he says, dogs will stop doing that when they're not dogs anymore. That's when they'll stop doing it. And Jesus was going into the land of the swine and the land of the pagans. And yes, some important people lived there. But the power of the devil had blinded their eyes. As the Bible says, the ruler of darkness has blinded their eyes and they cannot see. And so Jesus specifically, when He goes in, He gives them power to walk. He puts His fingers in their ears. He's showing that it takes the touch of God. If you read the story, they begged of Him that He would touch them. Read it. You'll read it in the text. They wanted Jesus to touch them. And that's what it takes. Salvation takes a touch of God. How are we saved according to? God does that work. God touches our ears. God touches our tongue. If He does not touch our tongue, we'll never say anything right. If He does not touch our ears, we won't even be able to hear good words. And if He doesn't raise us up, we'll never be able to walk after Him and follow Him. Salvation is a work of God. It can't be done by wisdom. It can't be done by uh, convincing someone. It can't be done by the perfect sermon. It's only the Word of God, that spoken Word of God that says be healed. I'll close with reading what happened because we know if Jesus came and he puts his fingers in somebody's ears, we know the ending. Do we not? If Jesus takes spittle from his own mouth and he touches a tongue that can't speak, we know what happens next. Do we not? We don't need to hear the next verse, do we, Luke? We know what happens. We're not waiting and wondering what might happen. We know exactly what's going to happen. He looked up into heaven and he sighed. Jesus was a man filled with emotion. I remember he sighed outside the tomb of Lazarus. He sighed. Oh. And here he is, he sighed. You see, God loved these people he was going to save. God loved you and me. The Bible says, with the great love wherewith He loved us, when we were yet in sin, when we were yet in Decapolis, when we were yet rather living with the swine, when we were yet living in our pagan rituals and in our ungodliness and our, our blindness to all of the yucky, disgusting things in the world, when we looked at everything that was lovely and beautiful and we snarled at it like it was ugly and gross, God looked at us and He said, 
I'm going to touch your eyes and you're going to be able to see. And you're going to be able to see the beauty of my holiness. I'm going to touch your ears and my words will be food for you. And I'm going to touch your legs and you're going to get up and you're going to walk and you're going to follow me. And you know what I hope happened that day, Andy? I hope that that maniac of Gadara was allowed to leave Decapolis and follow Jesus. It doesn't really tell us. I hope he was there. It doesn't say he did all of it. It doesn't say it. But I don't know how the crowds would have known anything about Jesus without that messenger going forth. He sighed and he said, be open. And immediately his ears were opened and immediately the impediment of his tongue was loose and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell nobody. And this is just worth mentioning. I feel like I'm J. Vernon McGee, you know, got to say everything about every little thing. But I'm telling you, there's something worth mentioning. Jesus commanded these people not to do something and they did it anyway. Now, I don't even really know what to do with that. I know that Jesus could command the waves. I know that Jesus could say, be still. He could speak the words into existence, but he commanded these people not to tell it, but they told it anyway. And it doesn't seem like God was that not pleased. Anyway, I, I don't understand. There's a little bit of a thing. Don't tell it, says, but the more he told them not to tell it, the more they told it anyway. I don't understand it exactly. I don't understand God's plan, but here we have them doing exactly what he told them not to do. And it ended up turning out all right. I think that kind of maybe is a picture of how even in our sinfulness and even in our, our, our wickedness that God uses us as disobedient, flawed sinners. He forgives us of our sins and He loves us. And even when we're doing wrong, we end up doing right. I think somehow that's what God does to us. And just like me, they were astonished. Verse 44, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear. And the mute to speak. May God open up the ears of people. Folks, I you know, I I I had such a great time many years ago. Benita when I met you, Luke when I met you, Tim, Jeff, Amy, Christina, Laura. I want more of that. I want our church to be filled with people. Who we go to. I don't want you to be the last one I get to be a part of that turns into my sister. May we go out into the filled world and be like Christ. And may we speak words of life to them. And may we not be afraid to touch them. Nobody wants to get your spit on them, but they need it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. May we be a church not that used to have fruitfulness. I, I, I heard a sermon at uh, I heard a sermon at Presbytery and I don't know if I was just being emotional or I was convicted. I don't really know. But there was a time when I said our church was fruitful and we are fruitful in our bodies. But I think we have come to a place where we have now become unfruitful We're not bringing people to Christ. It's not happening here. And I don't want to have raised my children so that they grow up and never have babies. We need to go out into Decapolis. We need to go out into that land that's not so pleasant. And we need to bring some people home. Amen? 
Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, give us the desire to see men saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Lord, it's not like there's any lack of those that don't know You and don't believe or lack of those out there. I'm sure the harvest is plenteous. Lord, have we stopped looking because we found You? Lord God, may we be rebuked today. May we be realize that we are like the lepers that discovered all of the food outside the city that was starving to death. May we say to ourselves, we are not going to do well. If we keep this to ourselves, oh God, send us out. Send us out. And Lord, I want to see people in our church again who smell uh, of the world. People who don't understand the things that we do, who are blind and deaf and dumb and don't know the right words to say. And Lord God, may it be our fingers that go into their ears and may it be our finger that goes to their tongue. And Lord, may it be us that takes them by the hand as Peter did as he came to the temple many years ago and he took him by the hand and he raised him up and he went walking and leaping and praising God. Oh God, give us, give us many who will do this in our midst that we might rejoice as they did that day. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.